Good morning, church family. It's me again. You just sat through five minutes of my face. Now you get me for an entire sermon's worth. Pastor Brent did say that I borrowed from my speaking time, so you'll get five minutes off at the end. I'm just kidding. Technically, I have you until 11.59. Uh, 10.59. Sorry. Some of you are like, what, what am I doing? I was just thinking, uh, I'm going to try to keep it right on task this morning. Um, but man, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully during worship. And confirmed the word that he has planted in my heart for you this morning. And I just feel already like, Lord Jesus, help me now restrain what you've given me. Because your service has a time limit. Second service technically doesn't. So maybe just now as you're sitting in your seats, be praying with me that the Lord helps me to kind of contain my excitement a little bit for the word he's got for us this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Hosanna Wagner. Pastor Brent was so kind to share the speaking platform with me. We are deep in our Summer in the Miners series, and I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed the last several months that we've spent studying what can often be overlooked, this last sec- this last section of the Old Testament. The books at first glance are kind of small and they're easy to thumb past as you're working your way from like Psalm to Matthew, right? There's this, this whole chunk of pages that are only, uh, chap- books that are only like one or two pages. But as we've learned, the minor prophets play a critical role as God has unfolded his message for us through the course of the Bible. And so we've been in the Minor Prophets, and today I get to share with you about Micah. And I'm so excited. I have spent the last several weeks studying Micah, and I'm so excited to get to share with you what God has been teaching me. So for some background and some context on Micah, you have a couple more weeks of getting to look at this gorgeous timeline slide. But Micah takes place, and this will surprise you 0%, at a brutal time in Israel's history. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that as the minor prophets are sort of taking place, Israel is in a, in, in a lot of conflict. They're in a lot of conflict within themselves as a once united kingdom, and they're also facing deeply oppositional forces from the outside. During the time of Micah's life, he saw the united nation of Israel split into two, into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom. And not only did they split, but these two kingdoms then went to war with each other. And the war was so great that the southern kingdom saw 120,000 deaths just on their side alone. It was literally an instance where brother fought against brother, family member against family member, and it was devastating for the once united nation of Israel. And as Americans, we kind of have a little bit of context for what that was like at one point in our own country. We went to war with each other. And that was such a devastating time for what could have been a united nation. And so this is the the context and the time frame in which Micah, the prophet of God, is stepping into. Not long after, the Assyrians, who were the chief brutal power, laid siege and totally conquered the northern kingdom. And they did this by laying siege over the capital city of Samaria for three years. Can you imagine being in a city for three years? If you like World War II history, you know about the extended siege of, is it Leningrad? Stalingrad. There was an extended siege over the city where they starved out a city and essentially made it so they had no choice but to surrender. The Assyrians surrounded the capital city of Samaria, and that was how they totally took over the northern kingdom. 
And once Assyria had the northern kingdom, they thought, we're good, we're going to go home. That's not what happened at all. They looked south to the southern kingdom of Judah and said, Judah, you're next. We're coming for you. The book of Micah might take place during the second half of the Old Testament, kind of in the back. But as we've learned by looking at this timeline, there's some crossover and layering. And so we can then turn to the book of Second Chronicles to find the details of what happens during this time. And we're going to be in chapter 32 for a brief section of time. The Assyrian king then challenged the leaders of Judah and the people in that kingdom by saying, no other God of any nation or kingdom has ever been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God be able to deliver you from my hand? His Full frontal assault on the kingdom of Judah started out with threats and with promises that their God would not hear them. And it was so thorough that the leaders of the armies would even lobby these threats to the people of Judah in Hebrew, in their own language. He was making it very clear to them, you stand no chance. Nothing can be lost in translation. It wasn't going to be a situation where the people looked outside their city walls and thought, our neighbors are coming to say hello. No, in their own language, he was saying, you stand no chance. There is no hope for you here today. In response to this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah gave up entirely. No, they really didn't. In response to this extremely difficult circumstances, Hezekiah and Isaiah went face down before the Lord. They prayed and they interceded and they repented on on Israel's behalf, on Judah's behalf. And they cried out to God for his mercy. God, will you move for us? We are up against insurmountable forces and odds. And without the move of God, we stand no chance in this situation. And in verse 21, it says, And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed the Assyrian army with all of its commanders and officers. And so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was forced to return home in disgrace to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, some of his sons met him there and killed him with a sword. God responded on behalf of his people so resoundly that Sennacherib went home and was killed because he was so disgraced. And God's response was so immediate and so thorough. There was no mistaking what God had done on behalf of his people. In this challenging time, the people had two choices. They could have wept and accepted their defeat. They could have looked out at what was in front of them and said, we're done. We'll just surrender. Maybe you'll have mercy on us and take us off into exile and we'll be prisoners and concubines and you'll have conquested us. Maybe this is the way that we'll live. We'll just give up. Or they could have turned to God and petitioned for his mercy and held on to the hope that their God would respond. And just like the Israelites, just like the Israelites, when you are faced with an extremely difficult circumstance, you have the exact same choice to make. Have you ever been up against an impossible situation? I mean, just flat, flattened you out, took your knees out from under you. Nothing is left to ashes and dust. Impossible. Sometimes... 
impossible circumstances are brought on by just the sheer broken nature of the world. We live in a fallen world. Ever since sin was introduced into the Garden of Eden, that secured that the earth would just be a fallen, broken place. And there are things that happen that are outside of our control. Sometimes impossible circumstances are the result of things that we've done to ourselves. And for the Israelites, it was their rebellion against God, their refusal to stay committed to his ways, their refusal to stay the designated people of God who esteemed him, that gave way for the Assyrians to rise up against them. They made compromises. They adopted the gods and the pagan rituals and the practices of the neighboring kingdoms. Small compromises here became larger compromises there. And eventually, because of sin within their own kingdom, that gave way for the Assyrian army to come up against them. Our circumstances can be consequences. And it's really hard to look at a situation and acknowledge that you're in it because of a choice or a series of choices that you have made. It's really hard to hold the mirror up to ourselves. And sometimes you're the kingdom of Judah, and what's pressing in from the outside is because of what's going on inside. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this knowledge once we're willing to face up to it? It's kind of like choose your own adventure and you've got a couple paths. You can take the stance of the victim and place blame elsewhere, anywhere but accept accountability. And there's an example of this. Adam in the garden. It's this woman you gave me. The people of Judah. It's our neighbors. Or we can acknowledge that we have responsibility for what's happening and move forward from that place of acknowledgement. This is the challenge that Micah then has for the people of Judah and the challenge that through that Micah has for us today. We can acknowledge what has taken the place of priority over God in our lives. What has caused us to compromise and make choices that have chipped away at our resolve to be the people of God. It's this challenge to us to undergo the process of discipline so that we can be restored and reestablished as his people. So Micah, then, in this way, is ultimately about two kinds of people. One who sits in the misery of his circumstance and allows those circumstances to inform his subsequent decisions and how we see the world. Or we can be people who have hope despite our circumstances. So let's examine this together. If you brought your Bible, will you open it to Micah chapter 7? And we're going to start in verse 1. And it joyfully starts with, how miserable I am. (laughs) How miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker After the harvest, who can find nothing to eat, not a cluster of grapes, or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. Boy, that's a sunshiny outlook. If you kind of backtrack into Micah chapter 6, we'll only touch on this a little bit, but Micah chapter 6 actually details how the Lord has brought a case against Israel and outlines what Israel has done against God that then produces what has to happen to Israel as a result of that. And 
as a result of what God reveals to Israel, Israel's first response is, woe is me. This is terrible. I am miserable. You'll find interestingly, Israel's response isn't, I'm sorry. It's not, God forgive me. It's, woe is me. I am miserable. Verse 5 then goes into how no one can be trusted, not your friend, not your neighbor, not even your spouse. There's even one translation of this chapter that says, not even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. Can you imagine the warning? The, what, what, what's being described here is that not even your spouse can be trusted. In verse 6, for the son despises his father, the daughter defies her mother, the daughter-in-law defies her mother-in-law. I would never. Mine is here. I love her so much. But that's what it says. Your enemies are right in your own household. Can you imagine what believing this about your life would do to your perspective on the world? If even the people who are the closest to you, you believe to be your enemy. This is an incredibly dismal outlook. And this was the outlook of the people of Israel. And guys, the people of Israel were people who had seen God. They were a people who had a long history of being able to draw on the amazing, miraculous, awe-inspiring ways that God had already moved and had been moving on their behalf. And in this instance, when God reminds them that they are once again rebelling, their first response isn't to seek repentance. Micah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. But this passage of verses sounds like things we've all heard today. Maybe we've heard our friends say it or our family say it, and maybe we've said it ourselves. When hardship comes, how easy is it to just crumble? To feel like the world is against you, to feel like your spouse is against you, your boss, your neighbor, your sister, a situation there's no hope for you. You just crumble despite being people who have seen God before. I don't always know what it'll take to fix the ugliness of the world, believe it or not. I don't have answers for everything. I do know that it's easy to see all the things and to just want to shrink and shy away and hold fast to just myself because it all feels wildly out of control. But that's not the right response. We may not be able to control what's happening out there. But we are in control of our response. We can choose where we direct our focus. We can choose how we acknowledge what's gone wrong in our own lives and what we can do to fix it. And we can choose where we place our hope. Here's where we find the contrast between the person of defeat in the first half of Micah chapter 7 and the person of expectation and hope in the second half of the chapter. Sharon, thank you for sharing your word on hope this morning. What a powerful confirmation of how God wants to remind you today that you are people of hope. 7 verse 6 says, but as for me, but as for me, despite what everyone else is doing, 
despite what's happening outside these walls. But as for me, I watch with hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, and my God, he will hear me. A person of hope is confident. We're going to be talking today about what it takes to be a person of hope. And Micah walks us directly through what it looks like to have hope. So a person of hope is confidence. Verse 7, do not gloat over me, my enemy. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. We talked a little bit about how sometimes valleys are inevitable, whether by the occurrence of this broken world or by the consequences of our actions. We all will go through hard times. And sometimes people observing what's happening in our lives will have opinions or offer what they feel like is helpful. Or sometimes they'll say things like, I'm just saying. Oh, do you ever hear that? Sometimes they're like, well, you just try this. I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh, that like pees me because they're not just saying. They have an opinion about something that's happening in your life and they want to make sure that you know it. People of hope are able to look at their present circumstance and even in difficulty say, what is God doing through this? What is it that he wants me to learn? What do I need to do differently? Do not gloat over enemy, me. Do not gloat over me, Satan. Do not look at me and say that you've won and that I'm defeated and I'm hopeless. Micah wants us to be confident. Have the confidence to endure a circumstance or a consequence and disseminate it based on what you know to be true about who God is and what God has said before and time and again, who you are to him. In this way, we can cast aside what's meant to be hurtful and move forward The only way that criticism gets a foothold in your life is if you let it, is if you listen to it, is if you let that worm its way into your heart and overshadow the truth found in God's word. A hopeless person faces a difficult circumstances and and lets that form their next steps, but a hopeful person filters a difficult circumstance through God's lens and allows the truth of God, the truth of God, to direct their next steps. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can have confidence that God is the God of peace. And that turning to him provides us with protection. Next, a person of hope is expectant. Verse 8 says, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Micah says, though I sit in darkness, that's present tense. That's something that's currently happening. He's currently facing the onslaught of the Assyrian army, telling him in Hebrew that they're going to destroy his kingdom. You might currently be in a situation presently. But we can also say, if we are expectant of the Lord, that the Lord will be our light. He will see you through it. I love it. The Lord will. In this situation, God hasn't necessarily done it yet. It hasn't happened yet. 
But Micah knows that the Lord will. And you too can know that the Lord will. If you're waiting on a breakthrough, the Lord is working it. If you're waiting on a healing, the Lord is a healer. If you're looking for restoration, the Lord is on it. He will, even though you're currently walking through it. We can expect that the Lord will move on your behalf with such total and complete doneness that the enemy can't stand a chance. It's an amazing promise that the Lord gives us. And Micah is so good to remind us of that. And he says in 4.16, tying together confidence with expectation, let us then with confidence draw near to God so that we may receive mercy and find the grace to help us in our time of need. And in Isaiah 4.31, and Isaiah, remember, is a timeline counterpart of Micah. They're living in the same, same lifetime. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. This is a future cast over your life. You will not sit in your misery. You will mount up. You will walk. You will run. The Lord will. People of hope have mighty expectations of the Lord. Thirdly, Micah tells us that a person of hope is accountable. And this is a hard one for lots of us to learn. I have a video and I'm going to preface this with, I have permission to share this video. I asked several times, but will you watch with me as one of my children when they were younger learns a lesson in accountability? (laughs) Why is Yaya mad at you? It is not in our nature to want to be accountable, is it? Nobody had to teach Judah how to dance around the truth in that situation. And I watch this and I think, I'm so glad that God is the model of what it is to be a patient father. Because I'm sure you can think of many instances in your life where you've either had to lead a small person of your own through being accountable or even harder situations when you faced having to be accountable. But uh, 
Judah was good to let us use that. If you didn't quite catch, it's a little fuzzy, but he uh, mysteriously, one of Gavin's Lego treasures broke and Judah was in the room and uh, Judah didn't know how it happened. (laughs) So he kind of had to go step by step until he finally confessed and held his accountability for it. But going back to Micah verse 9, it says, because I have sinned against him. I mentioned Micah 6 earlier, and if you have time this week, I encourage you to read Micah chapter 6, because Micah 7 is actually written as a response to it. I mentioned that Micah 6 is the Lord's case against Israel, highlighting the sins and misdeeds of the people. And the first part of verse 9 is really powerful, because rather than make excuses or give reasons for rebelliousness or sin, Micah simply says, I have sinned against him. On behalf of Israel, we've done wrong. We compromised. We rebelled. We have sinned against you. It is incredibly difficult to examine yourself and have the humility to take accountability for our actions. It's much easier to deflect. Have you ever been in like an apology cycle where it kind of sounds a little bit like, well, I'm sorry about that, but I only did it because this happened. Well, I only said this because you said this. I only backtalked because of this. I only road raged because of this. Oh, oh. (laughs) We have reasons, right? We have reasons for why we do things. And Micah 7 is calling us to be accountable, to just say, I did wrong. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances around that were, because God dignifies us with free will. He gives us the ability to choose. And when we say, the only reason why I did that is because this thing happened, we're not fully yet coming into being able to say, I just flat out was wrong. Because if we do that, then we have to accept the consequences of our actions. And nobody wants that. That sounds painful. <laughs> sounds painful to have to accept the, the consequences of your actions. Humility is not easy for humans. In the end, we need to be willing to say, I made the choice that resulted in my outcome. I chose to do the wrong thing. I lied. I broke it. I stole. I cheated. I was angry. I harbored envy. I held a grudge. I did it. When we can realize that the reason why we acted was out of our free will, here's the beauty of what comes next. Because we have free will, we then also have the free will to fully accept the forgiveness of God. And that's not something that is programmed over us and God isn't up there treating us like robots and we're being programmed. If we can fully accept that we, with our free will, chose to walk away from God, we now have the ability with our free will to choose to run towards God. And that's amazing. That is an amazing oppositional effect. We are fully free to receive his grace. Verse 9 continues, because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my cause and uh, pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. A person of hope is assured by God's forgiveness. They know that they have the forgiveness of God. 
It's here that we see the prophetic nature of the book of Micah. Remember, Micah was written like 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And while Micah is speaking about the present circumstance of Israel, he is also casting forward and looking to the time when the promised Messiah will come. Jesus hasn't been born yet. And we know because Jesus' birth has been prophesied that he's not just a magic baby come to be born. He is coming to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to stand in our stead, to take the weight of our sin, to take on God's wrath. We don't have to bear the wrath of God because God sent Jesus to do it for us. Verse 9 is a direct call to admit that you are a sinner and to accept that what Jesus did for you on the cross was the punishment for that sin. And the cross is the method by which we have total forgiveness, that we've been made restored and have the grace of God fully covering our lives. Because we are forgiven, Micah then declares, he will bring me out into the light. God is holy. And before Jesus, we weren't worthy of him. It's the covering of Jesus that makes us worthy to come out from the shadow of our sin and our darkness and to stand before him in his light. What an incredible statement of faith. Micah hadn't yet experienced it, but he knew it was coming. He is someone who understands the nature of God and understands what will take place so that we can be found worthy to stand face to face directly with with God. In this way, a person of hope is a person who keeps their sense of wonder. Verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. There's no one like God. There's no one like God. There are lots of words that get used to describe the nature of God, omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent, but Micah here chooses to focus on God being a forgiving God. Unlike the angry gods of other nations, God delighted to show the people of Israel mercy, and he delights to show us mercy. If only we come to him. Because of what God has done for you, you don't have to be like the miserable person in the first half of Micah 7. You can be a person of hope and of joy. You can have expectation and confidence in what God does on your behalf. And if you are a believer, this is my challenge for you today. If you're a believer, people should be able to see it. It should be a reflection on your life. Here's what I know, though. Life is hard. And sometimes that reflection, we forget to be people of joy. We forget to be people who reflect the countenance of God. We start walking through life thinking, I'm just going to hold on till heaven. That's not very joyful. Yes, heaven is coming. But if your position is, I just have to hold on. Where's the joy in that? The daily joy that comes with the confidence of knowing that God is for you. Lay aside your Eeyore-based theology. Okay. Pick up confidence. Pick up expectation. 
The world might still be broken and still in need of Jesus, but we can live through this life because we know that better is waiting and we can have joy while we wait for it. Hopeful people are joyful people. By accepting what Jesus did for us on the cross and believing that he is our savior, we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of those gifts, one of those evidences is what? It's joy. Joy despite your circumstance. Joy despite what's going on. It's a deep-seated, free-will commitment to cling to the promises of God. Because of what he has done for you, to stay in wonder of what he has saved you from. To be in wonder of what he will carry you through. Because he will be people of joy, Micah says. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? If you don't yet know Jesus, if you want joy in your life, if you have been striving and struggling and trying to figure things out on your own, and it's all come up hollow, and you've heard these words today, and you say, I want joy, I want Jesus, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand all across this room. No one is looking. And we're going to pray a prayer that's going to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus is the source of joy. Jesus is the source of confidence and expectation and hope. And he is for you today. Father, in this room are people who are turning to you. Turning to you to be the source of their joy who are confessing that they have done wrong against you, admitting to choosing things that are not you and who are choosing today to follow you, to put their source of joy and hope in you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God, that you are faithful to answer us when we call. We thank you that even now you are faithful to welcome people into your family. All together, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I have done wrong. And I admit that I need you to be my Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for assuring my hope for eternity. I trust you to be my source of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. For the rest of you, including those of you who have just accepted Jesus, this is my challenge for you this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus and you feel like your reflection of joy has dimmed, what do you need to release? You can't hold both. You can't hold on to the struggle and your commitment to stay angry or to stay disgruntled or to stay disappointed or to stay in your habits? What do you need to let go of today so that you can pick up the freedom and the reflection of joy of being God's people? Micah challenges us today to be people of wonder. 
The challenge today is to not ever forget what God can and will do for you on your behalf. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. We thank you for this reminder that joy is found in you, that freedom and hope and confidence are found in you. We thank you that you are a faithful, faithful God. Thank you, Jesus, for this precious time that we've had in your presence this morning. We give you praise, honor, and glory in your name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Brent. Oh, hey. Uh, (laughs) I was expecting Pastor Brent to come on up here. Hey, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. If you haven't yet filled out your Connect card, I want to encourage you to do that there. You can sign up for all the things that we have going on. Please let us know what we can be praying about and what we can be celebrating with you if you are new. Definitely turn in your Connect card because on behalf of new people, we support a ministry called Feed One that supports kids by providing food and fresh water and access to education. And it's our gift to you. It's free and it's your first step of ministry with us. Thank you for spending this Sunday morning with us. Sign up for a life group. We can't wait to have you here. God bless.